0: This is the third show in a row I've felt moved to discuss my take on the theology of NDEs. I started this in part to present a possible framework for reconciling organized religions to the notion of personal mystical experiences. Two weeks ago, I discussed why reincarnation seemed the only reasonable way we could be fairly judged for the lives we live. Each life is so conditioned, so arbitrary, that the way we... behave in each particular life is too limited by circumstance. In each life our behavior, our our capacity to love is conditioned by our genes, our parents, our health, our education and beliefs, our financial and cultural situations. To put it simply, fate, choice and blind luck limit what we laughingly call our free will. Given those odds, I think no God with any sense of justice would accept or reject us on the basis of one life, one roll of the dice. On last Friday's uh, TED Radio Hour program on National Public Radio, a a program titled Hardwired, experts with different points of view uh, concerning free will were interviewed. Robert Sapolsky, for instance, believed we had little chance of knowing who we are and why we do what we do. Contrasting examples of heroic and despicable behavior was given, and Sapolsky's conclusion uh, was that we have, quote, no agency at all. He said, biology is all there is. We are the sum of it. Moshe Schiff uh, said, rather, on the other hand, uh, argued that while everything we do is encoded in our DNA, that um, epigenetics, the software of our DNA, could be reprogrammed in our lifetime. In other words, it's not our biological mother's genes that determine our lives ahead so much as it is the, the kindness of the mother, the mother who takes loving care of you. M- uh, Moshe argues that your mother's quality of care can reprogram your very DNA to prepare you for life. Well, regardless of who's right in that argument, the possibility of reincarnation gives us multiple chances at balancing out the book we are writing of our lives. Each life is a different configuration, a different lifestyle with different DNA. Yet it's up to our soul to run the new body we're born into, at least to the best of our ability, given our circumstances. We are given lifetimes full of reprogramming, both cultural and genetic. But the soul that operates the bodies we are given has an emerging free will that derives from the sum total of all the lives we choose to live. Last week, I dedicated the show to the theme of judgment and to the biblical notion that there are two judgments, the Vima the judgment of Jesus and the White Throne judgment of God. In that program, I said each life we reincarnate into becomes a chapter in the book of our lives. And I quoted Revelation chapter 20's take on how we'll be judged in the end. And here's that quote again. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. Sometime in the last few days, I realized that if I was describing a possible possible theology of near-death experience here, I needed to tackle the end piece, which is heaven, our reward, or more precisely, our return to the source to make this stab at theology complete. So what we're doing here is going from reincarnation to judgment to reward. And frankly, I think accepting that reward may be the hardest step in the whole process. And I'll explain more on that in a bit. So what is this thing we call heaven anyway? Well, when I was a child uh, studying catechism, The first question in my little catechism was, why did God make me? And the answer that I was told to commit to memory was, God made me to show his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. So what is heaven? You know, it turns out Jesus didn't give us much of a description of heaven. In John 14, verses 2 to 4, he says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And similarly, uh, Saint Paul in Second Corinthians, uh, chapter five, verses one through five talks about housing in heaven. He, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, and meaning our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That's the end of that uh, piece from Paul, Second Corinthians. But this doesn't really tell us anything more uh, about Heaven than uh, what Jesus said that it's housing for us in a different, uh, in a different form. Well, to give you an idea of what heaven meant to the people of Israel in Jesus' day, there's perhaps no better text to turn to than the book of Enoch. Although both Jews and Christians later rejected uh, the book of Enoch for being too mystical, it was a well-known and well-read text during Jesus' life, and it survived for 1200 years. Um, and although it was lost to the West, we, they thought, survived for 1200 years as part of the canon of the Ethiopian Bible. And in it, Enoch describes ten heavens. And I'm going to read to you a very handy description, uh, an abridged description, which appears, um, on the Judeo-Christian tradition website, uh, with a credit says, written by Judas Maccabeus. So, uh, as, as I read these to you, think about, um, near-death experience reports because, um, I suspect that a lot of these descriptions of this first, second, third, and so forth heavens were garnered from people who came back with reports of what they'd seen. First heaven, clouds, stars, snows, and morning dew located atop the clouds and inhabited by winged angels. This is where the rulers and elders of the constellations reside, here with 200 angels. Nearby is the great sea, larger than any of Earth's oceans, while the heavenly storehouses for both snow and morning dew are located here. So it sounds like an upper-level upper atmosphere uh, take on the first heaven. The second heaven could be... uh, uh, termed a distressing near-death experience. It's a prison of darkness, death and despair, a place of darkness where the angels of darkness who joined with Satan in his original rebellion have been imprisoned, hanging from chains and awaiting judgment. The third heaven, which is the heaven that Paul said he went to when he had his near-death experience, is the mercy of paradise and the justice of hell. A paradise reserved for the good and the righteous, consisting of a fragrant orchard grove with the fiery golden tree of life in the center where the Lord rests when visiting. The roots to the tree of life extend downward to the garden of Eden below, and there four different springs flowing with milk, honey, wine, and oil. Three hundred singing angels tend the garden. In contrast, the northern section is a terrible place of icy, frozen darkness, with a river of fire flowing through it, and inhabited by cruel angels with weapons who torture those sinners who have been condemned here. That's the third heaven, and uh, that uh, that sounds uh, somewhat like the Islamic um, paradise too. That description of it as being the garden, the Garden of Eden. The fourth heaven, 12 gates of the sun and the moon, includes the 12 great gates and pathways of the moon, the six eastern gates and six western gates of the sun, along with all its different pathways, guarded and maintained by thousands upon thousands of angels. The sun is escorted daily by 8,000 other stars and needs a 100 angels just to light its fire. Some of the inhabitants include... Six winged creatures who accompany the angels, exotic rainbow-colored phoenixes and uh, shakiri, uh, with heads like crocodiles, as well as armed soldiers who are constantly singing and playing musical instruments. That's the fourth heaven. The fifth heaven, giants of silent sadness, and regret. It's described as a sad, solemn place of silence and gloom filled with a countless number of gigantic human soldiers called the Grigori who chose Satan as their prince and rejected the Lord of Light. Their faces are withered, but they still remain capable of occasionally singing praises unto the Lord. The Sixth Heaven, Archangels of the Arts and Sciences. These are uh, traditional... um, It's the home of seven uh, different groups of angels who both rule over the stars. They keep track of their motions, as well as overseeing and managing the various governments on Earth. They also keep records of everyone's good or bad deeds and keep careful watch over Earth's natural uh, systems of life and death. Other inhabitants include six phoenixes, six cherubim, six seraphim, who with one voice sing, Songs so otherworldly, they remain impossible to describe. And we've certainly heard descriptions of that kind of music um, uh, from some indie ears. The seventh heaven, powers and dominions of fire and light. An angelic realm of light and fire filled with the many different eternally loyal soldiers of the Lord, including archangels, virtues, uh, which they describe as forces, dominions powers and principalities meaning governments also present are the other worldly cherubim seraphim thrones and other celestial beings with many eyes along with what the text calls nine regiments and the iona stations of life the eighth heaven summer and winter of drought and snow controls and changes the different seasons of the year, causing either drought or rain on Earth. It also contains the twelve constellations, which would make up the um, uh, zodiac. The ninth heaven, twelve secret mansions of the stars in the night, considered the celestial homes of the constellations, which lie both above and behind the twelve groups of stars, as seen in the circular night sky, above the earth in the tenth heaven the last heaven is cherubim seraphim and the throne of thunder and lightning seen as the highest of heavens as well as the actual location of the Lord God Almighty's throne of judgment typically this is where the Lord holds counsel with his angels and saints making his decisions handing down his judgments and commanding his countless angels who surround him as they sing songs of praise and glory. Well, I, I don't know about you, but I find these uh, takes on heaven to be somewhat unsatisfactory. Um, and yet they do reflect uh, in many different ways some of the reports that we have had from those who've had near-death experiences. These are... Um, Perhaps personally designed for each NDE or hard to say, but these are the stories that, um, uh, Enoch gave us. And this is what uh, Jesus and his disciples and the Jewish people of his day, um, believed to be, um, accurate reports in the description of heaven. Let's look at Isaiah 6:51 6. 51, six. Um, where he describes the fate of the earth and the souls of the saved at the end times, because it gives us an, an idea of heaven as well. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, meaning, I think, the sky, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and those who live on it will die like gnats. But my salvation, as he's quoting God, will be forever, and my deliverance will never be ended. And then we get this description of a new place, a new Jerusalem, from Revelations 21, 10 through 27. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the at the gates and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of israel there were three gates on the east three on the north three on the south and three on the west the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, uh, which translates to about 1,400 miles in length, and as wide and high as it is long, another 1,400 miles wide and tall. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits. This is the thickness of the wall and that translates to 200 feet thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then there are some visions um, of, of, of saints as to... Um, Give, adding to our this uh, traditional Western take on what the heaven is about, Saint Catherine of Siena wrote this about her dialogue with God concerning heaven. She wrote, quote, "Just souls, just souls who end in loving charity and are bound by love, can no longer grow in virtue once time has passed, but they can forever love with that same affection with which they came." to me and by that measure will it be measured out to them this is what god is saying to Catherine. they desire me forever and forever they possess me so their desire is not in vain they are hungry and satisfied satisfied yet hungry but they are far from bored with satiety or or pained in their hunger Forever they rejoice in love at the sight of me, sharing in that goodness which I have in myself, in which I measure out to them according to the measure of love with which they have come to me. They are established in love for me and for their neighbors, and they are all united in general and special love, both of which come from one and the same charity, charity being love. They rejoice and exalt, uh, sharing each other's goodness with love and affection, Besides that universal good which they all possess together, they rejoice and exalt with the angels, and they find their places among the saints according to the different virtues in which they excelled in the world. And uh, likewise, uh, this is a description from St. John of the Cross in his uh, writings, The Living Flame of Love. And this is uh, becoming more a bit more mystical, I think, than Catherine. The center of the soul is God. The center of the soul is God. When the soul shall have reached him according to its essence and according to the power of its operations, it will then have attained to its ultimate and deepest center in God. This will be where the soul shall love him, comprehend him, and enjoy him with all its strength. When, however, the soul has not attained to this state, it is not in the deepest center, because there is still room for it to advance. But if the soul shall have attained to the highest degree of love, the love of God will then wound it in its inmost depth or center, and the soul will be transformed and enlightened in the highest degree in its substance, faculties, and strength, until it shall become most like unto God. The soul in this state may be compared to crystal, Lucid and pure, the greater the light thrown upon it, the more luminous it becomes by the concentration thereof, until at last it seems to be all light and indistinguishable from it, it being then so illumined and to the utmost extent that it seems to be one with the light itself. This is so close to Eastern religion uh, that I find it, and I find it to be uh, the truest. Western description of what happens when our soul goes to heaven. Well, when we look at Eastern religions, we get a clearer idea of what John is driving at. And this comes from Wikipedia. Uh, nirvana literally means blown out, as in an oil lamp. The term Nirvana is most commonly associated with Buddhism, and represents its ultimate state of um, release and liberation from rebirths in samsara. In Indian religions, nirvana is synonymous with moksha and mukti. All Indian religions assert it to be a state of perfect quietude, freedom, highest happiness, along with its being the liberation from samsara, the repeating cycle of birth, life, and death. However, Buddhist and non-Buddhist traditions describe these terms for liberation differently. In the Buddhist context, nirvana refers to realization of non-self and emptiness, marking the end of rebirth by stilling the fires that keep the process of rebirth going. In Hindu philosophy, it is the union of or the realization of the identity of the Atman, uh, the soul, with Brahman. And uh, just to quote Wikipedia, in Hinduism, Brahman connotes the highest universal principle, the ultimate reality in the universe. In major schools of Hindu philosophy, it is the material, efficient, formal, and final cause of all that exists. It is the pervasive, genderless, infinite, eternal truth and bliss which does not change, yet is the cause of all changes. Brahman, as a metaphysical concept, is the single binding unity behind the diversity of all that exists in the universe Aldous Huxley um, may have said the same thing in uh, in terms of the Tao he said uh, um, in introducing a, a book by Hubert Benoit's The Supreme Doctrine um, Huxley wrote Tao is the root to which we may return and so become again that which in fact we have always been being in the very place of God's love Why in heaven's name would people want to come back to life in another body in this crazy world of ours? This is a question that many of us have asked and uh, NDEers often feel that way when they're um, having a near-death experience. Well, my take on it is that I think it's because we're not ready to give up our independence and our egos and what we think of ourselves. There's an interesting passage in John 1:18. It's cryptic, so I'll give you a couple of different translations. This one is the New International Version. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. In the English Standard Version, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made him known. Jesus says no one has ever seen God. Now setting aside the Bible story of when Moses saw God's backside for a moment, let's consider what this might mean. The first several times I heard this reference, I thought, Jesus was saying he was the only one to have seen God. But no, that's not what this is saying. The quote is no one has ever seen God. Stop. Stop the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, meaning uh, or implying that Jesus uh, is the one who has made God known. There is no other being than God who can see God. And Jesus, traditional Christians believe, was God, so he could be separate and yet one with God. The notion that we could maintain our separate identity and be with God seems to contradict this quote. To me, the implication here is that there's an essential spark of God himself in each of us, but we have to shed our efforts to be unique, what we, what we consider to be ourselves, if we plan to merge back into the source. When I first moved to an abandoned farm in Maine, we cleared an old field for planting a vegetable garden and grow comfrey for the goats and to clear a path to a nearby freshwater spring. We'd cut and stack alders by day and burn the piles of as the sun was going down. And long before I'd ever considered going to seminary, I watched the sparks fly off the bonfires and know that my burn pile was an analogy for God. We are the contrary adventure-seeking sparks, flying off by the energy of our free will, destined to either burn out in the outer darkness, start a brush fire where it wasn't wanted, or fall back into the main fire, the eternal consuming fire of God from which we'd sprung. I was reminded of this insight many years later on a, on a bus to the Denver airport headed home from an IONS conference. The man next to me, a fellow NDEer, was telling me about his near-death experience, which went something like this. My soul left my body and was traveling, moving into the light. It was the con- essence of God, the, the light and love of God, and I was merging, becoming one with the light. My spirit body was halfway gone, and then I had a a moment's doubt. God, I thought I'm only 21 years old. Immediately I was out of there, back into some kind of a waiting room, waiting to re-enter my old body. When the spark re-enters the fire, the spark becomes one with the blaze. When the raindrop enters the ocean, it becomes one with the ocean. When the soul enters the light, the soul becomes one with pure love. To get to the spark of God that's within each of us, we have to divest ourselves of our egos, addictions, temptations, personalities, and the memories of perhaps a thousand lifetimes. We become one with love and all the rest is gone. This is why I think we opt for reincarnation lifetime after lifetime rather than merging with the light. To merge with God is the final, ultimate commitment to lose what we consider to be ourselves, our individuality, the separateness that made us little gods ourselves. Overcoming that final fear, the fear of losing ourselves, may be the final heroic act in returning to the state of pure, undifferentiated love that is the home God intends for us within Himself. Well, that's all we have time for today.